rehash everything. Okay, that was a great rehearsal, everybody. <laughs> yep. Well done. That was great. <laughs> People told us just to get to the news. Let's just get to the news. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do it. Hit the intro music. Cue it up, DJ. All right, everybody. Welcome to Black Hills Information Security, talking about the news. Uh, my name is John Strand. I'm the owner of Black Hills Information Security. I am joined by Badger Crashland. Um, Jason, I'm also joined by Ralph or Ralphit. Is it Ralphit or Ralphite? What do you go with there, Ralphit? I was thinking Ralph. And, um, <laughs> Ralph, Ralph, T. Ralph T. Got it. We got Ryan the Shootist is on. And we also have Marcello, or Bipe Leader, has joined us today as well. And we'll probably have a whole bunch of other people come in as well to join us, like my wife, who's walking that way. Um, <laughs> who just showed up. She says hi. She's like, screw this. I'm out. Yeah, that's it. That's it. We're on the air. So we've got some news stories that we want to talk about. Uh, Ryan, do you want to bring up the first story so we can first get started? First story. So. So this isn't quite ransomware, but it's kind of in that category. It's business email compromise. And um, it is actually a little bit different than ransomware. So whenever you're looking at business email compromise, the whole goal is for an attacker to do a, one of a couple of different things. Usually, if they can get access to an email account in your organization, that's like, that's like golden, right? Because once they're in that account, they can create a bunch of rules in your Office 365 account. So when certain keywords are met, the email will sidechain and it'll basically send a copy to them. Or they can set up things where they can come in and they can send email as you. But a lot of the business email compromise is even more basic than that. They literally just do like domain typo squatting. Like they come up with a domain that's close to what you're expecting to get an email from. And they will send you an email pretending to be a boss, an executive, someone from accounting saying, we demand that you immediately transfer funds to this particular bank account. And believe it or not, this type of attack is incredible incredibly effective in the industry. It's just basically saying, hey, you know, transfer money from here to there. Um, a lot of them you see actually show up in the housing market when people are buying houses. Uh, you'll basically go through a closing company. And when you get to working with a closing company, you're going to have the closing company, you're going to have an attorney, you're going to have a bank, you're going to have realtors. And it's, oh my God, Marcello's <laughs> hair keeps getting better and better. We have like Marcello's it. hair. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the the gig and how it works is one, they'll pretend to be one of these groups and they'll say the actual routing number for the funds needs to go someplace else. And it's very hard, if not impossible, to get your money back once it has been routed out. So, yeah, we see a lot of these attacks. Like I said, I think last year we worked about two of those uh, John's wife, a guy, not judging. No, that was how could she like she just literally walked by in the background. I don't know. I think I think Nelson Mendez. I I take offense, sir. Um so when we're talking about business email compromise, it's kind of also funny, and this is what I wanted to open up to the group. Um, how many of our companies that we pen test do you think would actually allow us to try to do a full business email compromise style attack? Well, since it would work every time, I don't think any of them. Like, why are yeah, you, they, if there's something you just know is going to work? 
I, I, I think that that's part of it. But can you imagine the pen test? It's like we were able to steal a million dollars from your company. Uh, Here it is back. Yeah. Um, or like a hundred thousand dollars. That would so not we don't, we don't get well. those types. Of well, that so probably that, wouldn't go over well. That reminds me of those uh, those skits where they have the drug bust and they're like, "Hey, we uh, we were able to find thirty kilos of cocaine, and these twenty eight kilos of cocaine will now be off the streets. The twenty two kilos <laughs> of cocaine that we found uh, will be on anyone kilos." <laughs> <laughs> like we were able to sell a million dollars the nine hundred thousand the t- <clears throat> the twelve grand that we have <laughs> and there was a pound i mean six ounces of pot uh so you know, it's funny. We had a pen test years and years ago. We were actually doing a gig with Secure Ideas and Kevin Johnson. And um, Ethan and Kevin's team were working together. It was an online brokerage company. And uh, they were able to bypass the two-factor authentication token in a weird way. Uh, so what they did is – we called it a two-factor authentication bypass. But if you went into this website and you bought a two-factor authentication token, they would ship it to you and they would charge your account $5. But if you basically purchased a negative one token, it would then credit your account $5. So a script was set up that was just automatically doing this as quickly as possible. And then everybody went to lunch, came back, and there was like millions of dollars in the account. So we like to joke about that being a two-factor authentication bypass attack. But the point of the story was, (laughs) as cool as that attack was, the company was not impressed whatsoever uh, with the attack at all. We were like, this was the coolest thing ever. This is so neat. And then um, they, they were like, wait a minute. Where did this money come from? We're like, I don't know. <laughs> did you so, keep the money? Yeah, people don't like it. Why they were upset? No, no. <laughs> no, it was funny because it was a lot of money. They couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And then by the time that they actually figured out where the money was coming from, there was an appreciable amount of interest that accrued in the account. It was ugly. Um, the whole entire thing was an absolute nightmare. But but my point is, actually stealing money from a company is kind of crossing that line that most pen test firms just don't do. But, it, but it's in the category of, of tests that we aren't allowed to do. And the thing that concerns me, and the reason why I wanted to talk about this and bring everyone's opinion in, is if you look at like SIM cloning attacks or attacking people through their phones because they're personal phones or BEC or business email compromise attacks. It seems sometimes that there's these attacks in the area that we're not allowed to test in. And it appears to me that a lot of companies don't test for it. So they don't think it's an actual security risk. So I wanted to get your opinion, uh, opinions for that. Yeah. So it's still a security risk, right? And I think you still can kind of test for it, but I don't necessarily think you need to actually transfer the money, right? Um, so, yeah. I mean, th- I think there is ways to probably frame this to, like, do it right. But, you know, at some point, though, there is kind of like, when do you cross it, right? When, when you know, when did you not do the test completely because you didn't actually, you know exploit the app that will money yes yeah, <laughs> i think it depends on the company too because i've tested casinos and they're more than happy to go down that road if needed like they they their their tolerance for that kind of testing is that they're okay a little bit higher they're a little bit even higher. though we even though we have been kicked out of casinos for successfully uh, yeah. like stealing money they it depends on the casino really but i also think it's better now than it was like eight nine years ago um, Landmaster 53 or Tim Tomes was on an engagement at casino and, uh, he was literally escorted off the premises, uh, for doing what was considered in scope that I, I don't think that that happens that much. And yes, <laughs> everybody that is in fact, Mubix that just joined, 
we have a ton of people like, wow, it's Mubix, Mubix. So, hi. So, all right. So speaking of Mubix, Rob, what are your thoughts, man? I came in right at the be- the wrong time to answer your question. That's why I didn't chime in. I, I don't know what the question is. Well, oh, the question is the things that we don't test that we should be testing for possibly. Like you and I have talked about SIM cloning attacks where we can absolutely bypass two-factor authentication doing some cloning attacks, but it's very rare that companies will allow us to do that. And the practicality is, honestly, a lot of those phones are personal phones. So it's kind of that gray area that we really couldn't test because I don't think they can give us permission. So those types of attacks. Um, I would say the, the for me, the thing that we don't test enough is um is stolen devices right that that's that's mine okay um that's my achilles heel essentially is that um or my soapbox i guess is the better phrase for that um is i was gonna say leaving your bhis computer out in public i'm like what (laughs) right well no i mean like most most companies like will have a policy of if you get a corporate device or a personal device that has corporate stuff on it, um, like uh, these are the steps that they take to either replace it, um, call insurance, or get you a new laptop, like all of these things that are definitely something that is built into IT and have been for you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But not a single company I've ever worked for or tested um, or even asked this question with, and that's a very small number compared to the number of companies out there. Um, But like none of them have policies on what to do if a laptop or mobile device is taken or stolen or, Mm. or missing for whatever, like how many companies do you know that if a stolen device happens, once it's turned, once the, you know, it's alerted about from the, from the, uh, the, the employee, go ahead and kick up the alerting on that specific user or look for anyone using the authentication uh, of that computer, or, right? Or the even, even the ability to remote wipe that system as soon as oh it comes back on. God, uh, I did testing on like 80% of the remote wipe software out there and uh-huh. one, one actually completed the remote wipe. Like, even though it reported back saying that it, that all of the other ones reported back saying, yep, queued up, definitely going to happen. And one totally never happened. One is the only one that actually had happened on. And it was so really you think if that's your claim to fame that you'd actually test that. I mean, it seems like that would be an important yeah. aspect of your product. Yeah. Right? And it's not even so. not even Apple that got it. It was um, it was uh, uh, Jamf. Jamf is Jamf was the only one that issued mm-hmm. the remote wipe. Um, and check to make sure it happened. Jamf, it's funny. Jamf, Jamf that, that'll be there. That'll be their like slogan. You're the only one that's guaranteed to nuke your shit remotely. <laughs> um, so, I was gonna say Jamf has actually got total hooks into Apple products, right? Like you can absolutely oh, yeah. wipe the whole device clean, and when you start it back up, Jamf will hook it right again. And that's through Apple. Like Apple has given them that access. You can. But why go can't in, Apple do it? I, <laughs> Not not my not Sorry. my digs. I'm just saying that they've wait, wait. given it. Like in here's the crazy part too. I have seen laptops that have been provisioned into Jamf that were not owned by the organization, and you had to go to Apple and tell them to remove it. 
right? Like they can, yeah. you could just go in there and plug in serial numbers and be like, good to go, buddy. That's my device. That's a whole nother attack oh, no. I thought about, but oh. yeah. So, so that, that, that gets into, there's a lot of stuff that we should be testing and I don't know what the right answer is, but when you're setting up a security program, these are the things you have to think about. Um, and you know, hiring your testing firm to do that. Cause we love it. Whenever we work with firms that are like, what we'd really like you to do is steal money from our, from our company. But I would say that's maybe three customers in the past two, three years, uh, that are willing to actually take that risk, but they should. Right. Um, that is absolutely something that oh, they man. should. Can I tell a story? Cause I have a really cool yes, story about please. Oh man. Yes. So, um, I was actually the best story about stealing money that I've ever had. And I love it to death is that there was a test that I was doing on really early on in my career. Like, like when I first started pen testing, this firm, um, uh, the, the guy was like a CISO for the company brought in the, and I'm like brand new tester. I have very little idea on like the, the okays and not okays that, um, I still, mm-hmm. I don't, I still don't have that, but, um, like the, um, so the I talked to the CISO and he's like, okay, so what we want you to do is we want you to steal um, as much money from XYZ account um, that you can and put it in this account. And we're not going to lose any of the money because it's just two parts of the business. Like we have the a logging. We're, so we're, I already so have the okay. For, just, you're just shifting have, it from one account I, to another, right? Yeah. So the CFO okay. is all good shifting with it. And um, so – um, just as at a, on a whim, like some, one of the other testers was talking about how he had um, gotten, um, uh, a, like joined another, was asked to join the company, another company to do a test or whatever. I'm like, Hey, what if I became an employee of this company? And what if I added my direct deposit as that other, as that other, uh, account? So I added myself as an employee. I put my direct deposit as the other account. I'm like, how much money do you want me to steal? And he's like, as much as you can. I set my oh, per no. day um, pay to a million dollars. I was there for three days. And all of that money was being pushed over on a per day basis um, for three days like, before they caught it. I like how you just go for the gold there, Rob. <laughs> You're like, what should I set it to? What should I set it to? Dollars. A million dollars. So for three days, I made a million dollars a day. <laughs> so, oh. What I love about that story is that if I told my wife I made a million dollars a day, she's like, what's the tax implication of that? <laughs> I hate that. It's like, well, the 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 the, the lottery is up to half a billion dollars. And they're like, yes, but think of the tax. <laughs> that's what I'm it's a taxi. You're one of those glasses half way. full kind of people, aren't you? Yeah. So as you're as you're on your private yacht and people are like, "Wow, this is a nice yacht." You wouldn't believe the taxes I had to pay. It's like zero sympathy. So the customer zero was sympathy. a little little frustrated because I didn't actually test their application for transferring money. Um, so they were like, well, we thought you were going to go this way. And I'm like, well, I got the money transferred. Like that was the goal of the test. But that's, but dude, that's what happens all the time. You have people like they get on the phone every once in a while. You get these customers that are kind of jackasses. They're like, well, we challenge you to hack us like a real attacker would. And then you kind of lay out the attack and they're like, don't do that. Or you're successful. They're like, why the hell did you do that? I'm like, well, you said to do it like a real attacker would. Um, I also hate the flags. Like, 
I put a flag on my company desktop and then you get to that folder and then you just see like there's porn all over the computer and then they freak out. They're like, what else did you see? It's like <laughs> nothing, man. Nothing, man. It's, it's none of my business, dude. None of my business. It's okay. Uh, so, yeah. MC said, are, are bad too. Yeah. 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 MC <laughs> just said, I thought that was the average cost of a pen test. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wearing my problem. Capitalism shirt. So maybe it is MC. I just don't know. Right. <laughs> so, all right, let's go on to the next story. What do we got here, Ryan? Let's see. Um, so this is one that I wanted to talk about. Um, so this is a LibCrypt uh, uh, library. So the reason why this, this bothers me is I, I don't think that a lot of people quite understand just how much of the internet is basically gathered by duct tape, bailing wire, and more importantly, volunteers. Um, I don't know if you remember a number of years ago, they did an audit of the SSL libraries, um, open SSL libraries, and whatever group did it basically ripped on open SSL, and they ripped on them for coding practices, and they were just kind of jackasses for the whole thing. And it turned out that really, um, we found out that open SSL is like four guys and a cat all working together to create the libraries that everyone uses for SSL. And LibCrypt is a lot like that, right? So Lib, you have Lib in this G-crypt, article right, right here, it says, it's huh? Lib what's G-crypt. that? LibGcrypt, right? It's LibGcrypt. Yeah. Yep. So you have this, it's like third-party open source supply chain problems, and you're going to have a bunch of commercial vendors that are like, yes, but uh, we're not a we're not an open source project, even though they're using the open source libraries in their own project. Jeez. And I'm, I'm not... I am not that interested at all about like the vulnerability, but I hate how this crap is spun in the industry where it's spun as though these people that wrote this open source project screwed up and it needs to be secured. And the fact is so many of these people are just volunteers and, and we, we kind of yell at them and I don't think that we give enough love and respect and credit uh, to the people that are literally holding all of our IT infrastructure together in many ways. Uh, this is a Tavis bug, too. Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> Tavis don't care. Tavis like uh, Yeah. So um, did he talk? I, I haven't read the whole story, but did, is it talked about the exploitability of it? Like, is it um, is it something quote that unquote, is so... Tavis said, "Quote unquote, it's easily. simple to exploit." Yeah, which always exploit, concerns okay. me. I want to. I want to make that clear. When Tavis said, of course, a lot of Tavis's ex- comes up with when you read through them and the way he writes them, they're very clear. Um, and a lot sure. of them are just bonehead type vulnerabilities. But if he says it's simple to exploit, yeah, it's probably simple to exploit. Uh, yeah, I mean, simple to exploit from his point of view as a bug researcher um, versus an attacker can differ, right? Um, mm-hmm. like if it's, if it's easy to exploit, if you have, if you're on the system and you can run, uh, you know, a GPG decrypt, like as an attacker, I really don't care because I'll get the same privileges as I had. If it's easy to exploit like remotely and I can upload my PGP key to GitHub and it triggers this exploit, that's a different, like different layer, right? Or different level. and um. I saw on the on the while well, I was scrolling by quickly that um, this vulnerability extends to Ruby Gems 
and uh, GitHub and a few others. So, uh, like, I'm trying to figure out where my cry wolf level meter is on on this. Like, it, is it is it the end of the world kind of thing, or is it just a um, patch all the things, or is it like a? I think we're in the patch all the things uh, yeah. category. I think that's where we're at. I mean, anytime you come up with any vulnerabilities that are in some of the core things that we do for securing and encrypting data at rest or data at transfer, it's bad, right? I mean, it's getting right to the heart of what we do to try to secure our crap. But um, I, I think it's in that I think it's in that category, Rob, of where it's like let's patch all the things as quickly as possible. Um, okay. You know, you start getting into trouble, which you never know. Whenever we're looking at this particular library, it could be used in a bunch of embedded devices, and it might be more difficult to actually patch these things. Um, but I think as of right now, I just think we're in the it's bad, patch your crap category um, in, in the short term. I don't. It's definitely not remotely exploitable as far as we see so far. Okay. Um, and I also noticed that CVE does not have the actual advisory up yet. Fantastic. So wait and see. Got it. So is there, is, is there ever a point where you just say, how about we just leave our perimeter wide open and we just do continuous thread hunting each and every day instead of. Yeah. It, it that's called feels, zero trust. That, yeah. That's zero trust computing. Yeah. Beyond it, corp. It just feels like there's so many vulnerabilities, so many things wrong. There's so many, like, where do you, where do you start each and every day? I, you know, I, I, I don't, very That's big, a really question. loaded question. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of people, whenever they look at their vulnerabilities, they just look at the vulnerabilities that they patch with Microsoft, right? Um, you know, what are the updates that we get from Microsoft? We're going to patch those things or whatever they get from Red Hat or whatever their major vendors are. But when you're starting to get into these third-party libraries, that's one of the things that I've noticed, especially with like web applications, is a web application is usually a whole bunch of open source projects that are all held together. And you may patch that application, but a lot of those open source libraries may have vulnerabilities. It's one of those fun things you can do when you're doing a web app assessment. Identify the technologies that are used and then go to the issue or bug trackers for those open source technologies. And then a lot of times people will say, well, here's a crash condition. And I don't know what this means. It says kernel panic. And that can be a really good way to actually start finding vulnerabilities that can be exploited. Um, but that's that gets into the major issue. And there's a couple of vendors out in the space um, that are looking for vulnerabilities in third-party software. But identifying that and tracking that is incredibly difficult. So, I mean, you're right from the perspective of, oh, holy God, everything looks like it's vulnerable because it is. But that's also why we just don't rely on our security support structures to be patch only, right? Like you have multiple different fallbacks. You have your firewalls, IDS, IPS rules. You try to do application whitelisting. You try to do internet whitelisting or allow listing as much as you can. So you're not relying on just one thing that if it fails, you're screwed, uh, basically. Get somebody else's opinion, like what they think about, you know, Jason's take on this as well. I think Dale Hobbs has it right. If you start... By looking in the obituaries, if your name's not there, your your day's starting off good. Um, <laughs> I love Dale. Pro- the problem is that my name is Robert Fuller, and like I find my name in the obituaries almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's a script. Keys it up. These are all not you, Rob. All right. <laughs> the, the, what's wild is he found this. I mean, like this version was released January nineteenth. And uh, disclosed, when was this? I mean, what? Like less than 
30 days after it had been out. Uh-huh. I mean, I guess is he is he just downloading every one of these big public libraries and yes. you know checking them all the time? I mean, because that could be true. I, I, mean, I just so, that's a real question I have. <laughs> so Google, um, uh, Google's uh, what's the project? Uh, zero project day initiative. Zero day initiative. I uh, know that's Google Project oh, Zero. Project. Yeah, Project Zero. Project um, zero. Their whole point is to pull everything that they can and look for vulnerabilities. Like that is yeah. his day to day job, right? Like there this is not and to do it not, at scale too. Yeah. So it's, man. Um, I never looked I, into the mechanics of that. Like, I mean, I've seen his stuff, right? A, a, a bunch. Yeah. Um, but never started correlating yeah. like times, right? Like, when did this go out on the internet? When was it discovered? You know? Well, when, they have really strict rules, too, right? Um, yeah. Of when, when they disclose things and why they disclose things. And it's a really good, um, if you ever want to read their write up on, on, on their disclosure policy, it's actually really good. And, um, well documented when they go uh, past when they let things slide when they when they will um, when they will instantly release things no matter what the vendor is um, and like there's well, if, it, it, but they had to right Rob I mean because yeah. for years there was just this this uh, you know you know full disclosure right is basically you would create an email address and you would just drop the vulnerability on a mailing list and then oh, people would freak out. The weird thing was that people would fix their stuff a lot faster whenever it dropped in that way. Yep. And then there was, what did they call it? Um, responsible disclosure, right? And that was driven that. by the vendors. Yep. Well, I, I, I like the newer term, which is coordinated yep. disclosure, but responsible disclosure was you're going to work with the vendor to come up with a good disclosure timeline, but that usually boiled down to the vendor dictating the terms. They would send you a non-disclosure agreement. You would sign it. They would never fix it. It would take months. It was a nightmare, right? Yep. And the, the whole thing was, well, if you want to be responsible, you're not going to release this because we haven't fixed it, and we haven't fixed it because we don't care because you signed the NDA. Um, I really like Google's approach because it, it kind of establishes a framework for the entire industry that basically yeah. says, here's the timeframes on how this is going to get released. And it's not a question of whether or not it's going to get released. It's going to get released. And that kind of moves us into a new f- buzz phrase called coordinated disclosure. So how can yeah. we actually stick within these timeframes that Google has? And it's cool that Google does this and Microsoft isn't that much different. It's yeah. cool because now it's creating a template for the rest of the security research industry. So they don't have to get bullied by companies as much. Like have you Oracle. seen the next, the next version of that? Like the next iteration of that is disclosed. Uh, no, that I, I so disclose.io is working on so we have the timelines and all of that um based on Google um Project Zero and, and like you said, Microsoft. And disclose.io is taking one step further and saying how. The problem with a lot of disclosures is finding that, you know, that point of contact that, oh, we have a bug bounty program, oh, we have a you know private bounty program, oh, we have these points of contact. Like that's really hard for and um, for companies to get started with, like I helped build a, a disclosure policy or program at a company before, like it's like, there's not very much documentation or, or ways to do it. Right. And if you talk to a cyber lawyer um, and there, there's more of them these days, but like valid ones, but like, there's a lot of armchair cyber lawyers out there. Um, if you talk to a, a cyber lawyer, they're like, yeah, there's no way you can get disclosures operating correctly with, and still, you know, blah, 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 um, scare tactics. And so what Disclose.io mm-hmm. does is gives a legal framework for companies to um, publish 
how they accept disclosures and how best for a mutual agreement to happen uh, like publicly like like the great thing about it is like it has um uh, what is it called not fair use but like um fair play i i don't know remember the term but there's a um uh there's a term that they use to give uh safe harbor they uh yep so I'm they just reading it right harbor, here about safe right. harbor yep they give safe harbor between so they that proves and says we will not sue you for disclosing vulnerabilities to us and it's a really awesome program for the next step of disclosure the disclosure debate Yep. And it's, but the thing that's concerning to me, and it's, it's true. It has to happen this way. This has to be adopted by the companies, right? Like yeah, as yeah, yeah. a philosophy, it has to be. Um, but you run into a ton of problems with what's going on now. And, and I'm not ripping on this at all. I think that we need to have a framework. We need to have a better conversation around mm-hmm. these vulnerabilities. But even companies that try to do it right, it's really hard. Whenever yes. you're looking at a lot of the vulnerabilities that come in or you're working through a bug bounty program and you have hundreds of vulnerabilities and you know a very small percentage of them are actually good ones that actually matter to your organization, then you have people yeah. stealing bugs in the bug bounty program. So it's going to be rough for a while, but I do think it really starts with a company establishing a commitment to not sue their security researchers into oblivion <laughs> and working that way out. Yeah, and it it also gives a good framework to um to having a conversation, right? It says that if you start going the criminal route, we have the ability to press charges and stuff like that. Like you're giving in in legal sense, giving, you know, a fair heads up on on what the possible outcomes are, it gets you mm-hmm. as a company way on way better footing than oh, um they disclose this thing and we want to sue them now. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I think well, and I think it also I'm, I'm going through this. It also has some responsibilities on the security researcher. You shouldn't yeah. be communicating with a company at the same time that you're trying to sell it to another group. You know what I yeah. mean? You've got to you got to act in good faith. Does this roll perfectly into our last story? Because it really absolutely does. Like, roll it's, like, it's like this perfect transition here. It's almost like it was well, set up. No. It was going to work perfectly. And then you called it out. It's like telling, oh, sorry, sorry. telling yeah, how a joke works. Yeah. I, I just no, felt like I'm I had. I, Thanks, Ralph. I ruined it. I, I, I'm going to say this, guy. but magic magic's even more impressive once you learn how it works. So, exactly. um, so let's go to the next story. The ni- next cyber attack is already underway. Did you guys read this story? I kind of don't. It was to very very. Title. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. Well, it, Rob, if you like the title, here's the first sentence. In the nightmare, sirens cartwheel as ambulances careen down ice-slicked crash, car crash streets whose traffic lights flash in all three colors at once. They've been hacked by North Korea during a climate catastrophic blizzard, bringing pandemic patients to the hospital without water or electricity. Pitch black. All vaccinations and medications are spoiled. The power grid has been hacked by Iran. Racing past apartment buildings where people are freezing to death in their beds. Families huddled together under quilts. While outside, the darkened besieged halls of the government, men wearing fur hats and Kevlar vests in social media has been hacked by Russia. Flashlights strapped to their rifles chant, Q is true. Q is true. And to all, a good night. It's just, (laughs) wow. And this is where it starts, right? When does the movie start? 
Yeah, exactly. when does the movie start? Um, it's okay. Bruce Willis is in it, and he's going to That's jump it. on an airplane at some point. Um, can you start reading me stories at night before bed? <laughs> I can't. I can't. <laughs> it's like I would read stories well, to my just, children. Just and sign up for his Audible list. He he he's a speaker. Yeah. He's a pr- translator on Audible. So you just sign up to his. There list. we go. And now I got another thing I can do. Hacker books on Audible. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> All right, so. So the problem I have with this article is it's very, very, very focused on zero days, just like the vulnerabilities that we were talking about. And it's very, very focused on the government's uh, purchasing of zero days. Now, they said the NSA has 100 times more people writing offensive uh, zero days than they do defensive, which I can speak as an expert as a load of garbage. Um, They have at least 100 times more people doing certification and accreditation and compliance, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) I don't want to get into because um, we got to keep the CIA and the FBI, FBI out of the data. Um, so the, the problem I have with this is, you know, at the end, they talk about how governments are irresponsible in collecting these zero days. And they talk to some hackers that write zero days. And of course, the hackers that are writing zero days make like their whole trade craft sound like it's this dark, scary art. And they're like the only magicians with dark eyeliner and really cool emo haircuts to write these particular zero days and garbage like that. Um, and how much, so my question is, you know, we, vulnerabilities are coming out constantly and I, there's no answer to the problem in this article. It's just a bunch of hyperbole about all these cool things that attackers can do and how bad it is. And it's not going to get better. Does this help? Um, this kind of the question, because what is people, the problem? Go, go ahead. Sorry, what is the, the problem, problem statement? statement boils down to one simple thing, um, and it's kind of the last paragraph, but it talks about how the government purchasing zero days and people writing zero days is a cash market. And because there's money in purchasing zero days, there's going to be these vulnerabilities that are discovered, and it's going to lead to catastrophic death. So, Okay. Uh... Why hasn't it happened yet is my question. Like That's a good point, Mubix. Governments have been buying zero days for ages now. Uh, a couple, a couple yet, of decades now. Yeah. Yet cash rock failure has not happened yet. Why? Like what magic is happening that, that you know, like defense technologies, I guess, that it hasn't happened yet. Weird. I mean honestly there's, I, there's a lot of things okay. that are that are a cash market right that are really bad I mean you just add this one onto the list I mean just because it's a cash market doesn't I mean I, I don't I don't really I don't really get the point of the article well, honestly but here here's my point and, and and this is something that I think that that is lost on a lot of people there were people writing zero days and exploits before there was a lot of cash behind it yeah. You know, there was just security researchers that were writing exploits and just basically finding vulnerabilities and things uh, well before there were people that were paying large amounts of cash for it. So I think the money aspect is not not like the one thing that we need to focus on. The biggest concern that I have with articles like this is, like I said, I, where this article ends up is it ends up panicking people. It ends up having a congressman 
or woman or somebody, a senator, read it, and they're like, we need to legislate this. We need to weapon – or we need to make these things legal. <laughs> we need to get involved in this. And it doesn't help. I love where your right? mind went <laughs> for a second. <laughs> it, for a split second, I heard weaponized. Sp- yeah, weaponized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So – my my concern is that you know somebody that's done this for a long time and has been working in this industry for a long time we all know that zero days are dangerous right but we also understand that it's not as simple as finding a zero day and then basically causing catastrophic damage there's a lot of failures that have to happen to actually get to that point but that's not sexy right like you can't talk about that um the other thing that you know this is kind of kicking off the hyperbole a little bit dear god we don't need zero days to break into things um, <laughs> how many times do we actually need zero days to break into organizations? Same how number. Many, yeah. How many major hacks have happened recently that didn't necessarily have a zero day involved or like most of the attack chain was not a zero day. Yep. Yep. So, it, you know, a lot of it comes back to hygiene. So we're creating this, I don't want to say boogeyman because somebody can cause damage with zero days. I think that that's absolutely possible. But the really, really important thing that needs to be said is somebody clicking on a link is every bit as dangerous as a zero day, and it's far more likely. But user awareness is not a sexy New Yorker uh, article you know, <laughs> on, on how to do user awareness. And like I said, these articles do not help. It gets into this thing where we're demonizing zero days. We're demonizing security research. It gets into stuff that Marcello, I wanted, I was happy that he showed up. It gets into demonizing whenever somebody writes an implant or uh, a malware specimen and they freak out about the specimen and they don't freak out about the underlying core principles of defense in depth and how architectures need to work. It, it's the same garbage where we try to identify a specific group and say, well, security researchers, that's the problem. Or people that write implants and release them publicly on GitHub. That's the problem. And I think that it just becomes a very convenient target. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that there really isn't a good way of writing these stories to attract a good audience without like making things dramatic. Because like you, you yeah. could you could go into like some of the technical aspects of it, but your article isn't gonna get a lot of clicks, right? So I mean the click, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean it's it's just a vicious cycle of writing like dramatic stuff just to get more attention. However, I mean, but is that a positive? It could be. That's a good point because it could be a positive because on one hand you're attracting, you're getting, you're getting more visibility. Like maybe like someone who wouldn't be interested in this, something like this otherwise would read the article and say, Hey, this is actually a problem. However, the it's, it's focusing on the wrong aspect of it. That's the thing. Like it's focusing on zero days rather than just basics, I think. And at the end of the day, it's those fundamental well, security basics that get you popped more than zero days. Yeah. And if you're going to write an article like this, I think that they should leave with some recommendations on how things get better. So I, I look at this as lazy reporting. And I, I would love for Jill Leopold to, to contact me on this because I do feel like it's very lazy reporting. And the reason why is you could, we could all sit down and we can talk about how crap's broken. And when we're sitting down at conferences and we're drinking beer or whatever – uh, beer or otherwise, we have these conversations where we're like, oh my God, everything's broken. Oh my God, we have these customers. Oh my God, we're, we're dealing with these vendors. Sorry, I'm paraphrasing everything Marcello has written to me today. Um, but you, you have, uh, you have, you, we, we sit around and we complain, but whenever you write an article like this, it's very easy to just simply throw stones and talk about all crap's broken. 
there needs to be another side of it to say, well, what are some things that we can do to help protect ourselves? And like Marcello just said, we could focus on some fundamentals. We could talk about defense in depth. Even if it's a couple of paragraphs at the end, that's like, hey, if you're interested in defending against things, here's some additional resources uh, that you can use. This is just a whole bunch of hyperbole, and it's basically talking about all these things, hellfire and brimstone, dogs and cats living together, and then it just leaves it at that. And I I don't like that because it creates the sense of panic, creates the sense of woe, and then what comes out of that usually is not a proper response to an article like this. I mean, the other thing too is that like the zero day is such a small piece of the attack chain. Like it's not the whole picture. And that's, I think the bigger issue here, like when the government buys these, they break this into a whole piece of an attack. And that zero day is just one little thing they pluck off, right. To, to make this attack chain. But it isn't sexy. It isn't sexy as a zero day. That's the thing. Like the entire attack chain to, to a non-technical audience isn't as sexy as a zero day. That's the thing because you can talk about, and it's got a cool name. It's got zero day too. Oh yeah. It does. I got, it a, does have I got a question for y'all. Why yeah. do you think? Why do you think governments buy zero days? Like, if it's so easy to break into the companies, why do they buy zero days? They, I, I know the answer to this question. I'll answer it, but I'll let you guys go first. Uh, mine is that they can't attract the the types of people who would work for the government to create those things with the salary okay. that the government would offer, and the fact that you have a lot of drug tests. <laughs> they got to spend their money. They got to spend their money. Um, no, they have a certain X amount of budget, and they got to spend it uh, somehow. I'm all about the max out the budget so you keep the budget. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're going to lose it next year if you don't, by the way. Everyone knows right. that. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Any other answers? I, I think, honestly, I think it's just to have a, a variety. You, just to have enough in the arsenal when you need it. Because you've got to realize that people who are operating on these, when they execute this plan, they only get one piece of it. They don't understand even the whole chain. And so in developing that all in-house, it's just going to be it's going to be ridiculous. It's going to be too much. And if that doesn't work, you need to move to the next one. Um, but, you know, that's my take. All right. So this gets this gets. A little bit of history, all right? So years ago, whenever you were working in um, offensive operations in the United States government, it used to be a small group of very, very, very technically competent people that had leeway and capabilities under certain very clearly defined objectives to actually gain that objective in a number of different ways, right? They could write zero days, they could do password spraying, they could have a number of different capabilities and techniques that they could utilize to specifically, to basically attain a specific mission objective. All right. Over time, what has happened, and I think TAO is a really good example of this, but what has happened over time is you used to have a whole situation where it's like, let's get some really smart people and let them do really smart stuff. And it got boiled down to run books. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it got boiled down to the point where if you're going to attack a specific uh, asset, these are the specific techniques that you're allowed to use. And if you get stuck, you have to raise your hand and there has to be authorizations, there has to be approvals, and it's got to go up to all these different things. And it, 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 um, it makes it a lot more difficult 
to actually maneuver and execute an offensive operation in the United States government today for many organizations that actually do that. But they've actually got that operational consistency. They're gaining access to what they specifically need to do, and that's great. But having those runbooks, what that allows you to do and what is having buying zero days from third parties allows you to do is instead of having your cyber offensive operations being run by like the top 1% percent of offensive security people. Now you can move it down to maybe the top 15, 20, 25 percent because you don't have people that are writing zero days. You're purchasing those. And then that can get plugged into your runbook, that can get plugged into your methodology, that can be plugged in to your systematic attack approach. And then you can continue to move and more people doing operations and you can have consistency across the board. You couple that with the fact that a lot of the zero days that are written are actually written by defense contractors who have teams of people that are writing these things. And they've established the economics with how long it takes to write a zero day, how much it's going to be worth. I want a zero day in a Soho router. How many, um, like if I'm trying to write a zero day for a home router, where is this router sold? Um, what country is it sold? How many installations does it have? There's all these different kind of economies associated with it. And you end up writing the zero days for those specific types of devices, operating systems, and things that you're most likely to encounter. But what it comes down to is it's being buying zero days and hooking it into a methodology and then making that methodology applicable. And it's something that could be ran by not really, really, really smart people, but just really smart people. And it makes it more effective for the entire organization. There's operational consistencies associated with it. Now that works right up into the point that something like Vault for the CIA or shadow brokers happen. And then a whole crap ton of your technology is then released on the internet and then things get a lot more um, a lot more expensive. Now, there is some organizations that are starting to change this because if you end up writing a zero day or let's just use Stuxnet as an example. If you have, uh, what Stuxnet have four zero? I can't remember. Uh, it was like a link abuse, um, scheduled task abuse, keyboard layout, and then a fourth one that I can never remember. Um, but it had four separate zero days. It was using malware that no one had ever seen before that basically shows us that there's a handful of countries in the world that can actually pull that off. And from an attributional perspective, it makes it very, very, very easy to say, yeah, it's pretty much the United States or Israel are the only people that could have done this because they would have had access to the Siemens PLC. They would have access to the devices. They would have access to the marketplace to buy the zero days. So that pretty much becomes very attributional. Now, there are some groups around the world that are starting to move away from that. China is very interesting because they're using third parties to do their exploits now. They're now they've always relied like, holy crap, let's look at China and Poison Ivy. They were using Poison Ivy up until like a couple of years ago, and the last update for Poison Ivy was 2008. But that's good for them because if you're using open technologies like Metasploit, if you're using technologies that are easily accessible by, like Cobalt Strike, then the attribution is not quite so clean back to one specific actor. So that is a really long answer to a very basic question. But it's basically you can now operationalize cyber offensive operations. If you have zero days, you purchase them and you can put them into your methodology. Breathe. Yeah, attacking, <laughs> hacking. <laughs> so, so, all right. I think that's it. Yeah. Anybody else have anything else to add? 
I think no? Uber Angel or Uber Archangel said that zero days also mean un- undetectability, and I would agree there. One of the one of the things that zero days add to an offensive playbook is that it's a lot harder to detect things that you don't know about. Um, yeah. Or, and the great thing about zero days is most of the time they execute in memory, which means that you can then put your your um, your payloads and in infrastructure into that memory space that is a lot harder to look at and parse and pull out. So uh, I, I completely agree with Uber Archangel there. Yep. <laughs> and they're just cool. Yeah. It's like magic smoke to me. Once you let it out though, it's like, all right, everyone's going to know. I like you got to be ready for it. Right. Depends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might get right. along, but you got to realize that once you use it, right. It's, it's out there. Like well, you're, but it's, it's not only, picking. Like, not only is it out there and there's a clock, but if you're using like a zero day against Windows systems, there's a strong possibility that your systems are vulnerable to the exact same thing. So it's this, it's, 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 it's a balancing act. Like, I know nation states are sitting on zero days that absolutely can be devastating on Windows systems, Uh but they also know if they release a, if they end up using a windows remote execution uh, zero day that gets picked up then all of their windows systems are vulnerable to it as well so it's a tricky game it's John. a tricky game that's why i don't use them is, so. is that like when you release a mongoose in your house to get the the rats but the mongoose might attack you as well yes that's exactly <laughs> like that here's a real question <laughs> do you think right red teams should use zero days in their attack right to simulate a real attack do you think that that is uh you know within the um scope of uh and the engagement depends on what you're simulating like if you're trying to simulate a nation state actor sure then you got resources for it i mean you you let's say that you 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 discovered a zero day okay you discovered a zero day and microsoft worked okay and now you can exploit that and get a payload. You discovered it. It's it's all yours. No one knows about it. No one's talked about this that you know of, right? Somebody else could have discovered it. It's not out there. Now you send a payload with that um, exploit, right? And you okay. send it. Somebody opens it and just goes goes to town. Is that within scope on a red team? I mean, so, just so my question. Oh, go ahead, Marshall. What's the recommendation? I was going to say that, that's what I was going to get to. I was yeah. going to say yes, and then again, defense in depth. That's that's the only thing that'll that'll you'll you'll have in terms of like in terms of detection opportunities for O days. Defense in depth. That's the only thing you have. That's that's legit. That's the only thing I can think of at least. So what this reminds me of is when I go and get my car washed. They said, "Do you want the standard, you know, the upgrade <laughs> or the deluxe?" And I guess when you're like, hey, I want a red team, I want the deluxe, you're like, so you want the O'Day deluxe or do you want the... <laughs> Just you know, the yeah. deluxe deluxe. <laughs> yeah. so, manager special. It's always the manager special. <laughs> so yeah. I've had this happen on an engagement. Uh, Ryan Hansen uh, found one, or a O'Day, right, in Microsoft Word, um, and it wasn't patched for eight months. And the question was whether we should be using that on the engagement. Uh, come to find out it was being used in the wild later on. Microsoft knew about this. And so they could see other people and they had to ask Ryan, like, hey, are you using this? And we ended up using it on only one engagement. But there were other people using it, um, you know, actively. 
So, I mean, but the real question is, is, you know, how do you make that recommendation? So that, that it really came back to like, do we you use don't. zero days? And yeah. You don't use it. You don't have a recommendation. You, like, yep. like yes, it's not a I finding. Like, yep. Just because you how have can, zero, How like, can you tell a company that security vulnerability critical, you're vulnerable to zero days? Mm-hmm. Right. So what you do is anything yes. after that action, right? That's what you write up is, okay, I, I exploited you via zero day. They're always going to happen. There will be some anywhere. Can't yep. like, did I get C2 out of it? Detection, right? Did I, what could I run net user ad detection, right? There's tons of things that happen. Like just because I pop a shell on your machine doesn't mean I, I can do anything on it. Like I've, I've had plenty of organizations that like I could get C2 running, but like I was stuck, right? There was nothing I could do on that box because it was so locked down, right? There, there have been organizations that do that, right? So like, yeah, it really just depends, you know. I think it depends on like certain customers' profile, right? Like if you have so a customer that shows up, yeah, absolutely. So if you have somebody that's a mom and pop bicycle shop, and they're like, "We want you to use zero days, and we're willing to spend a full five thousand dollars on this pen test," um, no, no. And, we and already you know, talked Dave about Kennedy pen test prices. That's a million dollars. That's a million. That's a million dollars, dollars per day. Um, so. So Dave Kennedy and I have talked about this because this is something that you you always deal with whenever you're running a security firm, right? You will have customers that absolutely have that threat profile. Like there'll be, you know, financial brokerages that are dealing with billions of dollars. You're going to have certain banks. Okay. So a lot of it is in the finance sector where they have the money. They have the willingness to actually see if what the impact of that would be on their organization and they treat the red team as more of an IR exercise than it is to say, well, we're, we're vulnerable to this. Now, contractually, if you're actually going to do a zero day, and like I said, BHIS, we, a lot of the stuff, if we find something, we release it to the vendor very, very quickly. But if you're a pen testing firm and you get into this game, you need to make sure in your contract that there's a non-disclosure agreement that that customer understands that they're not going to immediately take that zero day. And let's just say a VPN provider, and they're going to take that zero day as soon as they detect it and submit it to the VPN provider to get it fixed because that's going to cost the pen testing firm a tremendous amount of money to actually come up with another one. But those are rare, right? Those are companies that have the money. They have the threat profile. They're not necessarily looking at it for somebody to write a zero day, but they're seeing how their company actually reacts to a zero day. But if you're a company that's looking for a pen test, just a general pen test, do not expect a firm to write zero days custom to your apps in two weeks, unless your apps are garbage. So I got a question. Sorry to, uh, this is along the lines of what you just said. Um, so I was on a test one time that, um, we found a zero day in a public application that the customer used, but they sicked lawyers on us saying that we could not disclose this vulnerability because, um, they used this application and we had signed an NDA with them, right? Be, by, be part, by being part of the pen test, we had signed a bunch of paperwork saying that anything that we found, we had to disclose to them. And not anyone else. Not the and, vendor. And, so you couldn't disclose to the vendor, correct? Right. And so okay. what end up, uh, ended up happening is we, I was a tester for them six years later. They still had the same application, still had the same vulnerability, and the vendor had no idea about it. And I couldn't do anything about it still. So, like, what do you do in those situations? Like, what what is, like, how is, 
you, you just have to eat it, right? Well, like how often does that happen? So that's kind of the fundamental difference between using zero days to gain access and finding zero days in the actual pen test, right? And those those are different, right? Um, those are two different types of things. But from our perspective, from our contract, if we find a zero day in an application for a customer, the way it's written, it's up to the customer to disclose that. Uh, it's up to the customer to disclose that to the vendor. And it sucks because you're right, Rob, like, you know, two things happen. Either the customer sits on it and they never disclose it to the vendor or they disclose it once to the vendor. The vendor does nothing about it. Or, and this is a worst case scenario, they disclose it to the vendor and the vendor demands a meeting with the customer and with you. And then you end up spending weeks working with the vendor to try to get their crap fixed. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it's it's complicated, but generally, whenever you're looking at your contract language, that should be clearly spelt out in the contract how you deal with that. And for most of our customers, if we find a vulnerability in something like that, it's going to be up to the customer to actually disclose it. So what is the best scenario? What do you oh think? Oh, my God. My- if, if, we could get to the, if we could get to the golden scenario, if I find a vulnerability in an in a, in a, in a application that is publicly used or, or purchased or anything that is not something custom in-house written. What is the best case scenario if if you could have you, whatever change in the world? You need? My, my best case scenario is we had a bank once that they found, we found a vulnerability, a, z- a zero day, whatever, in, in their organization, shared Terrible. it with the vendor. The vendor did jack for it. And then our vendor went on the ASEC mailing list and they basically said, this company over here found this vulnerability and it's in this product. They need to fix it. That vendor was on the phone with them that afternoon getting that crap fixed. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> like people are like, exploit it and sell it. YOLO. And yet don't. Yeah, don't. <laughs> don't do That's that. That's a good way to go out of business. That's a good way to go out of business, right? So sell it on the dark net. You are all horrible. Like all of you that are listening to this show, just sell it. YOLO. Oh my God. Their revenue stream. You know? I think that it's a third. I think that, <laughs> I think that putting it into the contract and making it um, a very big part of the contract saying, Hey, if we find a vulnerability as part of this pen test, we get to disclose it. Here's our disclosure timeline for them. Um, and we will make sure that, um, one of the things that's different than normal coordinated disclosure is that we will wait until our customer patches it to to publicly disclose. So you disclose it to the vendor, the actual vendor. You disclose it to the customer. Um, I mean, customer first, then vendor, and and then you then you have thirty, sixty, ninety days of the coordinated disclosure defaults, and um, then you have a a clause in there that once a patch is is available then the customer is the end point of that where you say customer you have you've patched it now we can release it i I like that idea the the only thing that you have to be careful of and i'm not saying it's a bad idea it's just a pitfall to avoid is as, as a firm everything you said makes absolute sense and it's absolutely the way it should work the only thing as a business owner that you have to watch out for is how much time are your security t- is your security team going to be spending working with the vendor. So like Kelsey was doing a, a test for us and she had some vulnerabilities that she discovered with Oracle. Um, and I think she damn near quit over this, uh, but it was going back and forth like dozens of times. Sorry. 
<laughs> dozens of times working with Oracle, trying to get Oracle to fix their crap, and they didn't believe her. She had to submit. She submitted it from oh. the beginning, screenshots, full packet captures, little arrows showing exactly where the problem was at, and they were constantly oh. ignored. So the thing that you have to be careful of is how much of a time sink does this become? And that's it. That's the only thing, because everything Rob said was 100% correct. But watch out, or else you're going to have a tester spending 40 hours a week working on coordinated disclosure for something you're not getting paid for. You owe us that. You found it. You owe us that, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. That sums it up. Um, but, yeah, Oracle's a nightmare. And that's another thing. Is And this gets into a big problem for organizations like Oracle, right? No one wants to work with them. No one wants to go through disclosure <laughs> with them. It's like if somebody calls me up and they're like, hey, I found a vulnerability in something with Oracle. I'm like, create a burner email address, go on full disclosure and drop it, man. It's better for you. <laughs> better for your sanity. Um, it's just, just don't work with Oracle. And I know Oracle's lawyers are like, well, it's better if we threaten these people and we beleaguer them because they don't bring vulnerabilities to us. Yeah, yeah. Keep doing that. That's, that's working great for you. Oracle is, Oracle, the, Oracle is like the that the actually works. Technology company. Oh, there's someone here from Oracle right now. Like, oh. <laughs> so oh. if, you, if no. you send companies You're... bills, it's amazing how many will pay it without even. Anyways, <laughs> we we had one. I had a bill that I had to send to the Sands Institute, and our account. It was like a significant amount of money, and the accounting department screwed up and sent it to one of our customers. Two weeks later, we got a check. <laughs> no questions asked. We just sent them an invoice, and they're like, "Here, we must owe you money." Um, I mean, it, you, oh you my god, a bill you pay like, it, right? It's a great That's phishing campaign too. Yeah, it's business email compromise. It's like people that are listening to this are like, "Wait a minute, you mean I should just like create something that sends emails to thousands of companies?" That's a bill. Yeah, some will pay. Yes, yeah, like, some will. For this That's thing. not ethical. Yeah, don't yeah, do that. Yeah. And that should be in your threat profile, like unsolicited <laughs> invoices. You should make sure that you don't pay those. Yes. So, right. so, it, my last thing I'm going to say today is that if any of us ever go to prison for anything, people are going to love to hear <laughs> our story. They're going to like, no. tell me another story. How else can we do this? Tell me another one. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I can commit crimes without leaving my house? Yeah. Yes ish. Now YouTube is like transcribing this. They're yeah. like, oh, we're gonna ban this channel. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Please no. Yeah. Yep. I, I have a couple strikes against my account just be, by uploading videos of metasploitable. So yeah. Mm. It's a, it's a thing. Yeah, that, that does that. It's a thing. It's a thing. You know what we should do is we should create a new YouTube with no restrictions whatsoever. We'll call it Parlor <laughs> Tube. <laughs> no no with that. you want to put it on the internet. Four hours later, we would wipe no it clean. <laughs> we would wipe it clean. And oh. we'd be in the shower going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Oh. The crying That's games not- playing in the background. <laughs> That's bad. All right, let's 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 kill this. Uh, so thank you very it's much, higher. everybody, for sh- it was, it was a great show. Google, please don't knock our show off yes. the channel. Um, we appreciate all that you do, Google, because we need you. Google, you know, thank you. So thank Google. you. Google. All right, Ryan, take us out. Great. Some people say we're funny. Yeah. <laughs> Some people. <laughs>